I tell people, be a renegade in your ideas, not in your behavior. Hey, it's David, and you're listening to Leadership Without Losing Your Soul, your source for practical leadership tools, strategies, and tactics you can use to achieve transformational results without losing your soul or your mind in the process. Today, I am so excited to introduce you to a friend of ours, Sarah Kennedy, and Sarah is an author, she's a speaker, she's a former executive, and helps executives transform their leadership. Sarah is most recently the author of Leadership Unchained, and excited to be able to speak with you more about the book, Sarah. Welcome to the show. Thank you for having me. Glad to be here. I want to start by asking a question I ask every guest, and that is, when was the first time that you ever saw yourself as a leader? Oh, that is a great question. Probably kindergarten, of all things. Much to my mother's surprise, I loved to be in charge of cleaning up while at school, when it was you know time to clean up if we had a snack or time to clean up toys or whatever it was. I have a little tiny recollection, but I was told for years by my mother and the kindergarten teacher that I always took charge of that process, and I loved it. I loved the trying to organize and process improve the way we tidied up. <laughs> so um, that's probably when it started. You know, it probably went from there. I mean, that, that indicates a little bit of control freak, which that's not the most altruistic part of being a leader, but it is the truth. Um, there was something about liking process improvement and being in charge of that. As the years evolved and I evolved as a person, I think it shifted from this idea of having my voice heard or having a larger say maybe in a a matter. It became completely different and it became more about helping others shift sort of how they view themselves and helping them shift how others view them in terms of their potential. So you started early. It started early. (laughs) Very early. That's great. But it's interesting how many leaders you talk to who have some pretty early recollections. Everybody finds it as as a different moment, but kindergarten, that's fantastic. That's pretty young. (laughs) And and I love the way that it has evolved for you as well, that the satisfaction that you find, the joy you find. What brings you the most joy now in terms of leadership and helping develop leaders? I think it's helping leaders discover that they don't necessarily have to align themselves with a particular brand of leadership. Rather, they can look at what they bring to the table and see how they can do more of it. So how do they come to the role as themselves, but only better, not necessarily different? So helping somebody find that best version of themselves. Yeah, because I think so many leaders are struggling to fit a particular mold Mm -hmm. or to do what they think they're supposed to be doing. And it feels like an uphill battle. And so the minute they discover that they really can come to the role as themselves, but just, you know, try to leverage what they have, um, I think it's a a freeing aspect for them. So let's talk about that struggle a little bit. You know, the name of the show is Leadership Without Losing Your Soul. What does losing your soul mean? What does it look like? When do you see it happen? Well, the first thing that comes to my mind is years ago, we used to say something like he or she is a suit sellout, right? The people who are willing to forego their values, 
look past certain things or morph who they are to win the game of business, that just feels, you know, that just makes you want to take a shower, right? I mean, that just, just doesn't feel authentic. It doesn't feel like it has integrity. Mm-hmm. But I think for years, many people felt that that's what they had to do. I mean, they had to line up, right? There was a playbook. You didn't write the rules. I didn't write the rules. But in some ways, we all played by them. And and don't get me wrong. I, <laughs> I actually believe in some of those rules. I mean, I, I believe that when you sign on to be a leader in a big company or, or a small company, there's going to be a playbook and there's going to be some infrastructure. And so you do have to play the part or, or play the role in terms of how it's outlined for that culture or organization. Mm-hmm. I don't think you have to lose your soul completely in it. Mm-hmm. But, you know, I tell people be a renegade in your ideas, not in your behavior. Mm, that's so I, good. Think, I think what happens is somewhere along the line, we, we blurred this idea of being authentic with being able to be completely yourself, warts and all, meaning, you know, unbecoming behaviors and all. And that's not what we mean. I found myself speaking on both sides of that coin, right? If you signed up and if you want to enter the game of corporate business or small business, there is going to be a part of you that has to adhere to certain protocol. If you really don't want to, and that is just completely counter to who you are, then go be an entrepreneur, go be a solopreneur, go do your own thing. Or find an organization that aligns with the way that That's you're. right. Right. Every organization has its culture, its methodology, its approach, its service. It's what makes it them and different from right. another group. So if you're not going right. to help leverage and advance that, you're on the wrong team. Exactly. Okay. I love that statement. Be a renegade in your ideas, but not your behavior. Yes. So, well, that gets us a little bit into leadership unchained, unchained which, you know, is uh, as I'm going through the book, I mean, you make some fairly controversial statements. I love it that uh, I'd love for you to expand on a little bit. You challenge leaders to defy conventional wisdom. And so let's just start there. What motivated you to approach your next book, Leadership Unchained, that way? Well, it's interesting because the the way it started was me reflecting on what I did when I was a leader and what I wish I had done differently. And I actually wrote several blog posts about, wow, now that I'm working with leaders inside and outside of organizations and I see what they're challenged with and what they're doing, I'm humbled by a lot of what I see, impressed And I think back to, wow, I wish I had done more of that or less of this type of thing. But then as I begin to really process what I was seeing and hearing, I cut myself a little bit of a break because I begin to realize that part of the reason I didn't do things differently is that the landscape was so different when I was leading, right? I've been out of corporate for 15 years. And even in the past five to three years, the landscape is completely different. So then I begin to write about new territory, new maps. We need new ways of traversing this new territory. Mm -hmm. 
And so this isn't the classic case of a personal, what got you here won't get you there. This is a case of saying what science, what behavioral scientists and professionals told us about leadership, the things we knew to be true for years is now being called into question because the landscape is so different. So that's why I took classic leadership principles and I sort of turned them on their head. Fundamentally, the environment has changed. We've got to change how we're doing things. A new new brand of leadership. So, well, let's talk about that. What is, you know, when we're talking about defying conventional wisdom, what is, from your perspective, the worst or most damaging conventional leadership wisdom? I think the one is probably from the first chapter, and that's because it has a lot of tentacles. And that is our bias for action. At first blush, that may sound like, what? Stop our bias for action? I mean, I was rewarded for it. I was conditioned to be a get-or-done leader. But what I'm seeing is we're we're trying to meet this always-on, work-harder world by staying more tethered to our smartphones and desks and working longer hours. And it's not working. Well, it is. You're right. There's still conventional wisdom around that. You know, the uh, Absolutely. the fail fast and, you know, move fast and break things and, you know, all of those kinds of uh, ethos that, you know, we've encountered. We've seen some of the damage it's done. So that's right. If that bias for action is not serving us, what's the antidote? What is your prescription? So the antidote is to take a strategic pause. And let me be clear. This isn't about mindfulness. I'm a believer in mindfulness, I'm not knocking it, but that's not my intent here. When I talk about taking a strategic pause, I'm literally talking about making an unbreakable appointment with yourself every week, whether it's once a week, once a day, at the end of the day, and that is so that you can catch up with the fire hose of data you've been consuming, right? We run around attending meetings, We're hearing things in meetings. We read reports. We are inundated with data. We keep pace by reading industry journals and watching the news and the media. We can't begin to either separate the wheat from the chaff or make connections in whatever we're consuming, um, especially connections we may not have ever considered before. And we can't reflect in how we approach something if we don't take that time to pause and let all of that percolate, marinate, and make meaning of it. The bias for action is alive and well. We tend to, you know, just, we go to a meeting and we hear great ideas or we come up with a great idea and then we leave the meeting and, well, the rubber band effect of routine hits us in the face put out fires, go to the next meeting, and that idea is gone. There was no where to sort of, you know, contemplate it, think about it. It's gone. Yeah, a bias for action, you know, and I'm not, I'm not submitting that we throw it out altogether, right? It still serves. Absolutely, it still serves us. I'm saying we need to balance it and or know when it's the right time to take a strategic pause. And I see this with individual leaders, but I see it with companies. Mm. The entire culture 
is running around and they all pursue things at this pace and this bias for action. They'll put together an initiative and they don't take the time to pivot, to reconvene and see, is it working? Are we headed in the right direction? Do we need our course correct? Um, so, so it has lots of tentacles. Boy, this, I see why you say it has so many tentacles. You're talking about not just at the individual level, there's the team level, the, the department, right. and the, the whole organization. So right. let's, let's bring that down to the level of the individual leader. You know, one of the things that love to provide our listeners are really practical ways to apply what they're learning and, and to do something this week that's going to help them to be more effective. So when you talk about the strategic pause, Let's take a frontline leader, a mid-level manager. I was just talking with a guy last week who was showing me his calendar, and he has got not just back-to-back -back meetings, but any given meeting, there are two or three simultaneous meetings that he's been asked to attend. And obviously, there's no way he can do that. How would you recommend for someone who is finding themselves pulled in that many directions to carve out and be able to take practically take this strategic pause? That's a great question, and it happens to correlate with another chapter in my book, which is to disrupt the way you are working. And the way I always like to say it is everything you do should earn its rightful place on your to-do list or your calendar. So you really need to sit and ask yourself, Am I attending this meeting because I have always done so, because I have a fear of losing out or missing out on something that may or may not be said? Is there somebody else that can attend this meeting in my stead? Am I doing this report to make somebody else comfortable, but nobody's really reading it? I mean, I have in my book, I have a whole series of filtering questions that allow you to see whether something really is on your to-do list because it moves you or your team forward versus not. And I will tell you if yeah. this is a fantastic book, by the way, but just that list is worth every penny <laughs> five times that, but just the list alone. So what right now, while we're talking, let's make sure everybody knows where they can find the book. So leadership unchanged, Sarah, uh, Sarah Canada, that's C-A-N-A-D-A-Y. Where can we find the book? So it's on Amazon right now, and it's available both hard copy and digital. And within a month or so, it will be also available on Audible and other sound devices as well. Fantastic. So any way you can get that, definitely yes. worth it. If nothing else, just for the list, but there are so many good chapters. We're going to talk about a few more, but okay. while, while we're talking about it, that is such an effective, I love that approach of get rid of everything on your schedule, make it audition to get back on your calendar. Is this really adding value? Well, and if you'll allow me, I, I have kind of a funny story about this because, you know, you always, they say you, you teach what you need to learn, mm -hmm. right? Mm -hmm. And two years ago, I was, was the first of the year and I was putting together a little, you know, trusted advisor group that was going to come together. Most of these people worked on my team in some way, shape or form, wh whether it was my content editor, whether it was my social media person, and it was sort of a strategic planning year in review, where we were now and where we were headed type of thing. And I had a very dear friend and colleague suggest an offer to facilitate it for me so that I didn't have to be both facilitator and participant. And I said, absolutely. And this guy was brilliant. 
I came with data about the year in review and he very thoughtfully put up a pie chart of my delivery methods and I talked about the percentages in each delivery method, where I wanted to grow, where I wanted to shrink in all of my business models and proceeded to, to move on. And he interrupted me and he said, okay, well, we have a very important question for you as I'm rambling on and on going to the next thing, the bias for action. He said, what will you have to stop doing in order to grow? in this one particular area. And it, it stopped me in my tracks. I never pursued a plan with what I needed to stop doing as much as what I needed to do, mm -hmm. right? Because we're just wired that way. And it was brilliant because it ended up being one of the most valuable questions that moved me into that year. Right. There's just, I, we could talk about this all year. I mean, it's, uh, it's such an important principle. You know, I'm thinking of uh, the, the Bourne movies. They were originally based on some books and the Jason Bourne character in those books, he has this mantra that he's constantly reciting sleep is a weapon. And I love that principle that in the reflection here is the, the strategic pause is not a weakness. There's nothing wrong with you in that you need to pause in order to absorb all of this data and make meaning of it and, and think strategically about what you're doing. It's a strength. So as we're thinking about this, I'm thinking again of our, some of our, our more junior leaders or maybe somebody who's newer to leadership and they're thinking, I get the idea, but there is no way I could do this. I'm going to get in trouble if I try to carve out an hour and say, you know, don't talk to me. Right. Any advice for somebody who's feeling that kind of conflict? Yes, and it it may it may sound counterintuitive because I'm I'm purporting that we we need to stop trying to do more to keep pace with with the always on push harder world, but you know, I would suggest this is something I did when I was in corporate. I hate suggesting that people work more hours. But if it takes you saying on a Sunday before you head into to work that week or a Friday morning before you drive into work to stop at a coffee shop and just reflect and look at your notes from the week, look at your calendar, look at what you've read or consumed, look and try to, you know, again, just let it percolate, see if you can make some connections with everything you've consumed for the week. You know, maybe it's not an hour, maybe it's 30 minutes, but if it has to be outside of your typical work hours, I believe strongly that the investment will be worth your time because I think you'll go into the week feeling that you are, that, that, that your work is more manageable and frankly, more meaningful. Well, let's move to a couple more controversial recommendations that, that you make. And one of those that uh, I loved was ditch dependence on hard data. And that sounds pretty counterintuitive, particularly yes. in our evidence-based data-driven day and age. So talk to us about how do you ditch dependence on hard data? What does that mean? And what should we be doing instead? Yeah, data is sexy and, and people love it. And the more it seems, the more they get, the more they want, right? But I really think that I've seen either individual leaders or companies make 
dangerous decisions because they're over relying on the data. They either aren't seeing it in a larger context, there's a lot of noise around the data, or worse and probably more prominent is they aren't looking at what I, not what I call, I can't take credit for it, but what's called soft intelligence or some behavioral scientists call it thick data, right? So those are the things that we, the nuances that we don't know about that surround the data. So a lot of times when we do customer assessments, customer surveys, we get a number, right? But we don't know why they gave us the number they gave us. Or frankly, what people have discovered is that customers will say that they will use your product or service in a certain way, but when they actually use it, they don't use it the way they said they would. And the only way to know that is to observe customers in their natural habitat. So I'm saying, you know, don't ditch it all together, but I'm saying in most cases, we need more of a balance. So we need to get up behind our desks, we need to go out and we need to seek out more soft intelligence. And you know, in the book, I talk about my early, early years at a big company and I was on the sales floor taking incoming calls for property and casualty insurance. And I'll never forget, they brought in what they called a time and motion expert, right? And I think it was probably, I'm dating myself, but it may have been from one of the top eight consulting firms. They were known to kind of come in and do this kind of report. This gentleman sat with me, observed me toggle between all kinds of databases and platforms, saw me throughout the day dealing with multiple customers, took copious notes, and he and his colleagues who were sitting with others probably wrote some massive report and gave it to the executives for a probably a very handsome fee. And what struck me is, I don't think he ever asked my opinion mm. about what I was doing, why I was doing it, and what might help me do my job more effectively. And, you know, granted, he had his time clock on, hence the time in motion study, and he was, you know, amassing with his colleagues lots of data on timing and processes, but he missed out on a critical element, which is the people who actually do the job and their input. So there was some useful data that he could get, but how much better could it have been if it was yes, informed exactly. with your perspective on here's what I'm trying to do, here's why exactly. I'm doing it the way I'm doing it, and here are my yes. thoughts about how it could be improved. Yeah. So those sound like fantastic questions that any leader can be regularly asking their people whether you're doing management by walking around or on site in any capacity, what are you doing? Why are you doing it? And how can we make it easier or help you to be more effective? Right. And I call them data filtering questions. And just like the to-do filter, I have a list of questions in that chapter as well that leaders, anybody, uh, data scientists, anybody could go through and say, am I accepting this data because it's routine? Do I trust the field research? I mean, there's just several questions that you can go through to help you get at whether or not you've looked at both sides, both the, the hard intelligence and the soft intelligence. So practically, you know, every, 
everybody and we're here gathering data and you're always passing numbers to somebody. Right. Is there a best practice? And I know we're going to talk about best practices in just a moment, but is there a healthy practice around how to enhance the data that you're passing on to others? I think so. I think the, the best practice would be to take the data and I think it's incumbent upon leaders to share the data in the context of a larger picture. That's A, make sure that the entire picture is being presented, right? Because out of context, you can do a lot of things with data. But more importantly, I think as a leader, your opinion about the implications of the data or what, what you might do with the data, what you might suggest the data is pointing to, what you've seen in the past based on your experience in an industry. All those things matter. And I think it's incumbent upon leaders because they're paid not just to gather the data, but then to put their perspective on it, make sense of the data for others. To not just mindlessly pass it along, but to make sense of it and give other people the opportunity to have a healthy response taking that initiative. Right. Blind commitment to best practices as a conventional wisdom that we need to overturn. How on earth are we not supposed to engage in best practices? I, I love, I know what you're getting at, but you know, just yeah. hearing the comments. So blind commitment to best practices, talk to us about that. Well, and this is, gosh, this is one I prided myself on when I was in corporate because I was a researcher. I benchmarked other companies all the time. Because, you know, that's how you learned things. That's how you saw what worked for others. I think what I'm purporting here is that we've probably swung the pendulum too far in that I think we accept best practices and adopt them even if we're in a different industry, a different region of the country, Our culture is different. There may be all kinds of reason that somebody else's best practice won't work for us. Mm -hmm. But we, what I've seen is that we try to mindlessly adopt them without altering them or questioning them as applicable to our situation, whether that be as an individual or as a company. Right. And so that's, that's one aspect of it. And I also think that because things are evolving so quickly, best practices become outdated very quickly, but we don't question them routinely Mm. like we should. Mm, Right. So that's, that's a second reason. But the third reason, I think probably the most important is this idea of, you know, revolutionary, innovations. And those are the companies that are zigging while everybody else is zagging. So they're literally looking at best practices, or maybe they're not best practices, but they're standard practices in an industry. And they are purposely doing the exact opposite. Right? So in my book, I give the example of Capital One, the Capital One cafes, And for how many years have we heard that banks, they got on the bandwagon. They now know that consumers are not going to brick and mortar banks. They're just not. Mm -hmm. Everything has to be digital. I mean, 
I can deposit my check on my phone. It's a beautiful thing, it right? Is. We love it. And yet Capital One has decided to open these Capital One cafes, coffee shop-like venues where you can go in, work remotely, purchase your coffee, your, your, your goodies, and on-site is a Capital One or more representative just in case it moves you to discuss banking or to, get, to ask a question. There are some banking transaction options on site as well, but that was not the thrust of it, right? And so people are saying this is ludicrous. I think it's going to be too soon to tell, but literally right before I published the book, I went back and did research and they're opening more of these, you know, there were test markets and they've now growing the number of Capital One cafes, which tells me they're on, it must be working to some degree. Getting some positive reception. Yes. So that's just one example. And who doesn't like coffee? Right. (laughs) So it's not that we're not engaging in best practices or or healthy practice. It's we're recognizing that a best practice exists in a particular circumstance, in a particular environment. And it's the best at that moment and in that time and in those circumstances. And we need to be regularly examining have circumstances changed? Is something different that requires something different from us? Right. So Sarah, everything that you're sharing, there is this thread of thinking critically about what you're doing, you know, and from the creating the space to do it with the strategic pause to dishing the dependence on hard data. That's what does this data really mean? What is creating some meaning around it? If we think about it, how is it gathered? what's the purpose, all of the surrounding enhancing of meaning. And then finally, this idea of examining our best practices, all of it requires critical thinking and reflecting about what we're actually doing. Do you have any recommendations for somebody thinking, listening and saying, you know, I hear this, this isn't my strong suit, reflecting on these things and thinking critically about them. Are there one or two key questions that you would recommend people ask of themselves in order to dive deep and get at what is really going to be most effective for them? Well, I think I would, it's more of a challenge, right? I mean, I I think I would say to somebody, as you're listening right now, are you checking your phone? Are you checking for emails? Are you reaching for an article that you meant to read? Are you trying to keep up with the mounds of data by asking for more data? (laughs) I mean, are you trying to stay and keep up again by by doing more and being more available and yet it's not working right so i think the the mind shift has to come first there has to be this acknowledgement that you cannot continue at the pace and with the old practices that we knew to be true, which is just go, 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 bias for action, rely on our own perspectives, move ahead, make decisions quickly. Uh, those aren't working anymore. If they ever did. If they ever did. Yeah. Yeah. I think that's part of it is you have to just sort of be in the right mindset to accept that, you know, maybe what, what you're doing now either isn't working or it's working, but it's exhausting to you. Like you said, they're, they're you know, maybe bitter or burnt out. 
if what's working for you is great, you're happy, you're loving life, then hey, maybe you don't need to contemplate these things. Maybe you already do a lot of these things. But I think that's the first step. And, you know, if it's hard for you to challenge yourself, there's nothing wrong with getting a trusted advisor or two and getting in a room with a whiteboard and throwing some ideas out and saying, okay, here's, here's what I struggle with every day. Here's what's on my plate. Here's what happens. Here's a typical day for me. And have people challenge you. Okay, so why are you doing that? Now, when do you go there? Why aren't you doing that at the beginning of the week so that you know more about, you know, I mean, there's all kinds of, it doesn't have to be a solo path. It, it could be a great thing to do with a few trusted advisors. Oh, such a powerful tip. I, I hope you, uh, if you're listening, write that one down and make sure you take advantage of that. Then I call it that personal board of advisors. You know, it's yes. having, and they don't even have to be in your organization or they no. can be some, you know, amalgamation of, of whoever you find. But wow, what, what a powerful activity to engage in. And even once a year, twice a year, uh, to be able to reflect that way and, and help yourself take that critical look at what you're doing. Well, Sarah, thank you so much. I've got one last question for you. Um, we're going to move away from Leadership Unchained. Before we do, just a reminder, get the book. It's going to help you be a more effective leader. Defy conventional wisdom. You'll be that leader that is zigging and achieving breakthrough results while everyone else is zagging and doing the same old thing. So not only a way to distinguish yourself, but having looked at the book, a way for you to enjoy the work that you're doing and get more fulfillment and have more meaning and purpose and, and better results ultimately as well. So Sarah, the last question I want to ask you is, what are we not telling new leaders and managers that we should be? Ooh, good one. Well, I, I think, you know, I reflect, it's almost wish what I wish I had been told. Hmm. And that is, yes, your job is to get results and to deliver the goods, but your most important job is to develop and grow others. I mean, it sounds trite, but again, I, I'm you know this was years ago. I was I was more of a of a performance based leader, and I did I did help those that worked for me develop, but not near to the extent that I think would have been helpful for them and for the company. And also not to near the extent that people need and expect today. That is excellent advice. And I certainly would agree with you there. That is one of those things that I did not start nearly early enough in my career. Yeah. Sarah, thank you so much. We really appreciate your time and sharing this wisdom and you know, spending a few minutes with Leadership Unchained. Again, you can find it on Amazon uh, or anywhere that you're gonna find books online. And uh, it is well worth the read. Yeah, so thank you for sharing that with us. Thank you for having me. I love to answer questions and I would love to answer yours. So send me your questions about leadership, management, whatever's going on in your world. We'll use as many of those as we can in this segment of the show. To send in your questions, you can do it one of two ways. First, you can go to letsgrowleaders.com slash podcast, find the appropriate button, or you can send your questions to david.die at letsgrowleaders.com. Now, let's get to your questions.
This week's question comes from Mark, and it's regarding the show that we did on false choices, the choice between leadership, management, confidence, humility, results, or relationships. Mark writes, David, thank you for the show on false choices. My question is about working in a culture that doesn't value relationships. The pressure is for results. And I'm wondering, how do I balance results and relationships when they're not valued at work? Thanks for everything. I love this question. It's authentic and real, and I think everyone can relate. You might be in a situation like Mark is where in a context that doesn't value relationships, but you can equally be a very results-focused leader trying to balance results and relationships in an environment that's very relationship-focused. It's common for you to find yourself in a culture that is overbalanced one direction or the other. What I invite you to do is to create a cultural oasis. That is, no one tells you how you're going to interact with your people. That's a choice you get to make. So on your team, for your department, for wherever you're leading, your circle of influence, what does that look like for you to focus on results and relationships? It doesn't have to be valued anywhere else for you to do it yourself. And the good news is that over time, you will see the results and the relationships build together, and ultimately your results will speak for themselves. We call this a cultural oasis, thinking about the desert where you have that oasis that's the watering hole. So even if you're in an organization that has a very caustic culture and it might be so results-focused that it's very inhumane, you can create an oasis on your team, the people that you serve and work alongside every day, that is humane and that is balanced on both achieving results and relationships. Mark, thanks for the question. Until next time, be the leader you'd want your boss to be. This podcast is a part of the C-Suite Radio Network. For more top business podcasts, visit c-suiteradio.com.